0: hey i'm andrew
1: and i'm rachel and we are picked to the scene podcast
0: we are true crime podcast that aims for you the listener at the scene of the crime
1: we just want to say thanks to mark and Bethan for giving us the chance to introduce our podcast to you the seeing red epic listener base we hope that you'd like to come and give us a try on whatever podcast platform you listen to your podcasts on
0: so we hope to see you all soon bye bye bye
1: and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Bethan.
0: And I'm Mark. Welcome back, everybody. We're here for another episode.
1: Yes. And before we start, shall we say a huge thank you to our newest Patreon supporters? A huge thank you to Sophie Dove, Rachel Lynn, Pippin Sarah, and Laura Phillips. Thank you very much, guys.
0: Yeah, thank you to all of you. Thank you to our existing supporters on Patreon too. If you would like to join this growing army of Seeing Red listeners, all you need to do is head over to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. And we've got a number of different tiers that you can sign up to. There's no minimum term, so you can cancel whenever. And you get access to all sorts of amazing benefits. So do check it out. It's patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast.
1: So this week, Mark, we are going to be discussing one of the most feared criminals in history. Her name is Gail Roberts. Have you heard of her?
0: I've not heard of her and she's female, Mm. which was a surprise.
1: Yeah, no, I'm um, I'm joking. Actually, oh. Gail Roberts is one of our lovely listeners and oh. she is turning 70 this week. So I thought oh, I just... I
0: saw this.
1: ...name drop her that way. So her daughter, Rhiann, and grandson, Dylan, wish her a very happy birthday and all three generations listen to the show. So we just wanted to say happy birthday to Gail.
0: How lovely. Happy 70th birthday, Gail.
1: Okay, so in... In truth, this time, the week, this week's episode was inspired by my husband. And it was inspired by a case that he mentioned in passing the other day. When you said you needed something lighter, I thought, right, this is going to be the one to go with. I was on it. But then the annoying thing is, is there's not much to actually discuss. But I found some interesting cases that were shorter. I thought I was going to bring you a selection of small cases in one episode tied together by a loose theme. And I've not really done an episode like that in a while, have I?
0: No, I always enjoy anything where there's a few different cases and they're all connected in some random way or there's a theme. Yeah, as long as it's a bit lighter, because we've definitely gone really dark, I think, over the last few weeks. And obviously it's a true crime podcast, so there's going to be a lot of dark content, but it just feels particularly so uh, over the last few weeks, like I say. Yeah.
1: The first of my three cases is particularly dark, but the last isn't and you'll see why and it's it's actually going to be hopefully a bit of a, a breather for us and our listeners when it comes to the show and just having a break from from the really, really harrowing stuff. So the headline that caught my husband's attention was an armed robbery committed by a man in Brazil where he held up a jewellery store. But the reason the headline got his attention and then in turn got my attention was because the man had no arms. So there was a lot made of the pun of is it really armed robbery? etc etc and that's genuinely all there is to it how annoying is that I thought it was going to be a nice light-hearted something different for us and that's kind of it
0: because that is really going some isn't it to be able to hold up a jewellery store you don't have any arms and you're committing an armed robbery how Mm -hmm. are you holding the weapon how are you going to carry all the loot away it doesn't make any sense in any way well, but basically,
1: this 19-year-old man was in a wheelchair, so I guess he figured he could drive away with his loot. Um, he came into this jewellery shop and placed a threatening note on the counter with his foot, and then he pulled what looked like a real pistol on the shopkeeper with his foot. Um, it did wow. turn out to be a plastic fake gun. Someone else in the shop called 911. The police arrived, arrested the teenager, and he was actually in possession of a knife as well. He was later released from custody... But an investigation is ongoing at the moment into the crime. Um, I think what really gripped my husband's attention is, with a headline and a story like that, the internet was just full of puns and memes, but not really any more than a paragraph in our episode.
0: No, I kind of feel sorry for this guy, 19 years old, lives in Brazil, there's some really deprived parts of brazil and i'm pretty he's probably... sure he had cerebral
1: palsy cerebral palsy yeah i can never say that yeah. properly cerebral, cerebral palsy, palsy. Yeah, so... yeah i'm pretty sure that's why he was in a wheelchair um and it sounds as if his family went to go and get him from the police station and that's why there's no charges because mm. what was he ever going to do he wasn't ever really going to get away because you're looking for someone with quite a specific description
0: yeah and what what threat does he really pose? And also, it just makes me think maybe there's not much of a welfare system there, and he was so desperate for money that he mm-hmm. had no choice but to do it. I don't know. I mean, I'm not obviously advocating going and holding up a jewelry store and putting the staff through that kind of trauma of having a gun pointed at them. But yeah, just I don't know. I feel a bit sad for him. I hope that I hope that the although the investigation is ongoing, I hope that no charges really do come from that.
1: Yeah, it's it is mad because obviously the internet finds it hilarious arms armed robbery blah, blah 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 but i genuinely just felt like that's not us and that's not really our show and i was kind of like there could have been so much more to this and we could have had a really good discussion but i was the same as you i just started to feel a bit sorry for him and yeah. the situation he's in the fact that he couldn't even really pull off a robbery because that was that like they just called the police and they turned up and they just took him like yeah
0: yeah, very sad, really.
1: But he did, you know, my husband did inspire this week's kind of theme. So, let's crack on. My first question to you, Mark, and our listeners, is, are toe prints unique? Uh,
0: uh, I would say they've got to be. If fingerprints are unique, I would I can't see toe prints being any different.
1: Yeah, you are correct. Oh, okay. The, yeah. the walls and ridges develop uniquely in each person and are not genetically determined. Another body part that is unique is the tongue. So the tongue is unique to every person with respect to its shape, surface textures. So some people have long tongues, others have short ones. And then the physiological texture, your tongue has several ridges, wrinkles, seams and marks. And those are unique just like fingerprint ridges. Each person's set of teeth is also unique much like their fingerprints and identical twins do not have the same set of teeth so a tongue print could be as good as fingerprinting for solving a crime but you're less likely to have a tongue print left at a crime scene
0: yeah. or <laughs> although on I'm glad you talked about teeth because that has definitely uh, come into play in terms of other investigations where unfortunately an assailant has bitten their victim and that kind of gait and bite has been matched to them and that's been a way that they've been able to catch them so it does yeah it is useful
1: definitely was it the yorkshire ripper case where um he had there were bite marks i think it might have been peter i think it was yeah Yeah, definitely one of the cases but you're right so many cases where that's been a part of it there was a brilliant thread um online which was talking about how tongue prints would be almost the perfect thing for solving crimes because unlike your fingers and your your feet and your toes where actually environmental factors can make a difference you know you might have a finger damaged or your fingerprints burned off in acid or so you know something that could happen um you know acid in general life like we all like we all just have our fingerprints burned up all the time yeah it, it was talking about it's very very unlikely that your tongue would ever be affected or changed but then at the end, it was it just had this line that was kind of like, but how many criminals lick the window of the short shop that they're robbing or the house that they're and it was just it's never going to happen. But apparently it could it could be better than fingerprints. So I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, I think with 100% certainty that our listeners know about cases where criminals have been convicted on fingerprint evidence. We all know of at least one case, don't we? But do you know when the first crime ever was solved by a fingerprint?
0: I wouldn't have a clue at all.
1: Yay, so that's I'm glad because that's what the first case this week is. But it is harrowing, so it's not going to be light-hearted yet, Mark, but soon. In 1891, Juan Vucicic, I think is how you say his name, A mathematician from Croatia who had emigrated to Argentina in 1882 began working with the police in La Plata in Argentina on accounting and then statistics. In 1891, following the groundbreaking work of the French criminologist Alphonse Bertillon, the chief of police instructed Viotic to set up an anthropology... No, not anthropology, I kept on saying that. Anthropometry office. So... Bertillon was a French police officer and biometrics researcher who applied the anthropological technique of anthropometry to law enforcement. So basically creating an identification system based on physical measurements. Before this, criminals could only be identified by name or photograph. But anthropometry... I am going to struggle with this word, Mark. I'm so sorry. And I'm sorry, listeners. <laughs>
0: Can you imagine if I was having to read all these words out I, and I actually <laughs> yeah. don't have a hangover Because I, I think a lot of our listeners know we generally record our episodes on a Sunday morning, quite early, quite often. So um, normally I've got a bit of a sore head. I would I would not cope if that was the case. Uh, Honestly, today, I do it myself it. though, don't I? Yeah, yeah, you love it. Deary me.
1: So Anthropometry was the first scientific system used by police to identify criminals in this manner. So the system consisted of five initial measurements: head length, head breadth, length of the middle finger, length of the left foot, and length of the cubit or your forearm. So, having those measurements, you could then check whether or not your criminal is the same criminal now as as hmm. the one from before.
0: So they they would be that a combination of those would be unique to. Any one person then?
1: You'd think so, wouldn't you? You'd like to think that they wouldn't have the same, really. And then he was also the inventor of the mug shop. So photography and photographing of criminals began in the 1840s. It was only a few years after the invention of photography that they actually started photographing criminals, which makes sense. You're going to use the new technology to help with law enforcement. But it wasn't until 1888 that Bertillon standardised the process. So along with those measurements, he kind of combined them with the photo onto a system and then law enforcement officials could access this information and the images nice and quickly. Although this system was based in scientific measures, it was known to have its flaws. And really, it only worked on men who had reached full physical maturity and had short hair they kind of, you couldn't really use this on women or on children or teenagers. It it was only really men. And also they had to have short hair because otherwise their big hair could make a difference for the measurement of their head. So a little bit awkward couldn't there. Couldn't these
0: people just measure the head and not factor in the hair?
1: Well, you'd like to think so. But we're looking at a long time ago, aren't we? People, so. were, people
0: were definitely thick back then, as a general rule, weren't they? Back in the what sort of eighteen hundreds, they, they just had they less than us, didn't they? They couldn't read. They just had they less just, information. Yeah, I mean, they used to throw out their sort of like human waste out the, the window into the street, and rats were r- running wild, and yeah, it was just you know weird sort of time, wasn't it? Of thick <laughs> people.
1: Do you think though, as well, like? in the future people will just look at us as well won't they and they'll just think oh god what were they doing why did they do this why did they do that
0: i do yeah absolutely yeah because at the time in in even in the 1890s these people probably thought they were yeah super clever and in the context of that time they would have been and we we feel the same now but Yeah, in a hundred years' time, I kind of can't imagine what the world will be like and the technology that will have been invented and the science and medicine, all of that. So, yeah, I suppose people will be talking about us in a hundred years' time and, and calling us thick.
1: Yeah, so... Uh, Juan Vucicic set up the office as he was told but he soon became really interested in this new science of fingerprinting as a means of identification so he decided to experiment and using mummies from La Plata Museum and corpses from the local morgue he developed his own practical classification based on four fingerprint types His official first trial run was with 23 known offenders whose prints he collected, and this, in 1892, is believed to have been the very first working fingerprint database in the world. When local police in Buenos Aires couldn't solve a brutal murder in 1892, they sent for Inspector Eduardo Alvarez from La Plata, who was aware of this revolutionary new system. On the 29th of June, 1892, in a city in Buenos Aires, a man called Porciano Caraballo and his neighbour, Ramon Valaquez, found a horrific scene at Caraballo's house. In the bedroom of the Caraballo family home, laying on the bed were his two children, Ponciano Ernesto, who was aged six, and Felicia, who was four, and their mum, Francisca. So all three of them had their throats slit and whilst the mum was alive, the children had much more severe injuries, and they died.
0: Oh, that's a terrible! I know. Scene to come to, mm-hmm. to come upon, and and for the mum to be alive with what would be really severe injuries.
1: Yeah. So Francesca immediately claimed that she and her children had been attacked by their neighbour, Ramon, the guy who'd come back with him. And then her story changed a bit. So first off, she said he'd tried to seduce her and when she'd refused, he'd threatened to kill them all and then had attacked them. Next, she claimed that Ramon had actually been attempting to take her children away from her off her husband's instructions because her husband was planning to leave her. But whatever the reason was, she named Ramon Valakes as the attacker and he was arrested on suspicion of murder next is one of the most ridiculous lines i've ever read and one of my sources said the following i have to read it verbatim because it's just bonkers according to the standard practice at the time the local police used torture to elicit a confession from the accused despite the violent and intimidating interrogations velica maintained his innocence i was just like jeepers but i suppose it's late 1800s and as you would say stupid people (laughs) i don't know yeah
0: i mean that That is ridiculous. Do you really think you can add any weight to those confessions when people are being tortured until they confess? It's only going to get to one sort of end point and that is with someone confessing whether they've done it or not.
1: So Valaquez was actually submitted to subjected to several brutal beatings. He was forced to spend one of his nights locked in a cell with the children's bodies, Fucking and it's also hell. believed that a police officer dressed up as a ghost to oh. try and scare him into confessing as well. But he explicitly denied killing those children. The police didn't know what to do next, so they re- requested assistance from the capital, and along came Inspector Eduardo Alvarez. So he came along to investigate. He quickly determined that, actually, Ramon actually did have an alibi. He was out with several friends at the time of the murder, so clearly wasn't him. The murder weapon was a kitchen knife, and Inspector Alvarez basically thought that a labourer would be more likely to use the knife he carried on his belt day in, day out, than taking a kitchen knife. And also learned that Francisca's other boyfriend had been overheard saying that he would marry her, except for those two brats.
0: Did they really so get call them brats story back then? Yeah.
1: I guess that must be a translation. I think that yeah. would be a translation then. Yeah, the way they would speak then, I think is... Maybe they did. Maybe that's where we get the word brats from. <laughs> Probably it Could not. be, could be. So Alvarez examined the crime scene and discovered a brown mark on a bedroom door, which he determined to be a bloody fingerprint. Remembering the training that he had received from Juan, he removed the section of the door with the impression and took it back to La Plata with him as evidence and then requested that both um, Ramon would be fingerprinted and also, um, I mean, he was pretty certain it wasn't her at all, but he also asked for Francisca to be fingerprinted as well. Once these this had been completed, and he had the he had like a big plank of wood that he was taking back. He compared the impression on the door to that of Francesca, and actually matched it to her. When confronted with this evidence, she broke down and she confessed to the murder of her two children. So she then said this was a murder suicide attempt, saying that her abusive husband's threats to take them away meant that she tried to kill herself as well as to take them as mm, well, so that no, he couldn't have bullshit. any of
0: them. Bullshit. She. Killed those two kids because she wanted to run off with that guy who called them brats, and then she's just slit her throat in a half-assed attempt to make it look like what she's saying, or yeah, that it was that she was attacked, or then you know that it was a murder suicide.
1: Yeah, and that's what that's what the jury felt. She was subsequently convicted, and on the twentieth of September, eighteen ninety-four, Francisco Rojas was convicted of murder and imprisoned indefinitely. It was the first time that a conviction was got you know, on record officially, so maybe there was a different one, but this is what everyone believes is the first fingerprint conviction.
0: Very interesting, yeah. I it's weird as well. I know obviously we've had things like Jack the Ripper when we go way back, but we just we never cover old cases. So I know that, that this is one of a, a few that you're gonna sort of cover in this episode, but I, I normally avoid them like the plague and it is actually really interesting to go back to that time and hear some of the similarities in terms of what happens today that sort of infidelity and having to get rid of the children so that she can run away with a boyfriend. All of that still happens. All of it happens all the time still.
1: I know. Humans don't change, do we?
0: No, no. Not really. Yeah.
1: So this case laid the groundwork in proving the superiority of fingerprints for personal identification purposes compared with anthropometry. So it really did kind of show that this is the, the better way to to kind of be able to catalogue your criminals and in 1902 fingerprinting was officially adopted in Argentina as the sole means of identification in criminal investigations and the fingerprint bureau in Scotland Yard had been established the year before New York followed suit in 1903 so really quickly the world kind of all became interested in this one field of fingerprinting
0: and and again in that regard nothing's changed fingerprints are the same so you take them and you compare them I suppose the only difference now is that we've got more sophisticated databases and technology to scan them and and compare them but yeah that science behind it is exactly the same and of course it would be and always will be so yeah it's yeah, really interesting the to hear the origins is,
1: is different but when, yeah. you know you're unlikely to have someone remove the entire door frame you're likely to take photographs and the the latent sort of the the plastic where you put the powder and yeah you can tell i paid a lot of attention when i did that um csi course i remember that that was so much fun though but yeah it's it's the same basically
0: love it so let's take a break now to hear from this week's show sponsor
1: i did ask you earlier mark about toes and toe prints and i'm going to be heading back to feet for a bit of true crime again There is a Scottish police officer many of our listeners will know the name of, James Bruce Hendry. He's gone down in history as a great officer. He's really well regarded for his career. He began his time in the police as a constable in the 1920s and he served in Lanarkshire Constabulary for more than three decades, during which he climbed the ranks to superintendent in charge of CID. He investigated some of the county's highest profile murder cases, including two of the notorious Peter Manuel killings, and he bounced back from serious injury to see out the final years of what people have described as his shining career. James Bruce Hendry made history in June 1952 following a break-in at a bakery in Bells Hill where he found a toe print in flour. He found the suspect, William Gawley, and this toe print was admitted in evidence for the first time ever. The jury accepted the evidence, and actually it was the only evidence that this guy was the, was the burglar. The jury accepted the evidence, and a guilty verdict was returned in just 15 minutes.
0: Why, why was this guy in a bakery with no footwear on, no socks on? That's what I want to know. I guess know. to
1: sneak around, because you don't want to make loud foot feet, yeah, like you don't want someone to hear you maybe maybe footsteps that's the word i was trying to think Love. of. Like, yeah. Footsteps? <laughs> yeah
0: yeah maybe yeah
1: i guess i guess that's why and you p- perhaps wouldn't have realized a bit like before fingerprints you wouldn't have realized that you should wear gloves at a crime scene before dna you didn't realize you shouldn't spit on something i don't know um yeah i didn't want to say what the other one that we always have to talk about um so maybe he just didn't really think about that
0: on that other one, we are going to be talking about that in Crime Wave later. We will be. So we I'm will afraid be. we are going. We're going to have there, to say the word semen, aren't we? I'm afraid um, so. Many times because
1: yeah. recently, yeah, that doctor has been sentenced. He's been
0: convicted and sentenced now. He's yeah, been convicted and, he, and sentenced. Just for anybody that isn't familiar with, uh, just oh, very briefly, this, he was. Tell them the story. I'm, Mark, it's I'm, so just, gross. I'm not going to plug into my detail. ears. No, I, I won't go into any detail. Basically, a GP from Taunton has been convicted of depositing his own semen into a cup of coffee that he made for a female who then drank it's it. So and disgusting! it's it's a, a huge violation. It's a disgusting thing to yeah. do. And um, we'll we'll talk more about it on Crime Wave for uh, for those that follow us on Patreon and support us on Patreon. Uh, you'll hear that. You'll have possibly heard it by the time this episode comes out. But yeah, a vile case.
1: Mm and that was not just the only James Bruce Andrews case involving a footprint evidence as well just 6 months later in December 1952 James Walker Adams was convicted of a housebreaking at a warehouse in Glasgow and the evidence of a footprint through a hole in his gross holy sock proved crucial and he was convicted so he'd taken his shoes off but not his socks and um his footprint that had come through the hole of his sock on the bottom of his sock, then got him convicted as well.
0: And I'm picturing vile, mangled, cheesy, blackened feet with Lovely. grotesque, overgrown I wasn't toenails.
1: Until you said that. Despite the forensic importance of finger and toe prints, scientists haven't quite figured out how they form. So apparently, your ridge patterns are set five months before you're born. And environmental factors influence the formation. Identical twins, as well as conjoined twins, have distinct sets of fingerprints and toe prints.
0: But they have the same DNA, don't they? Identical twins. Yeah. So at least this is a distinction if fingerprints are found at a crime scene. Yeah, otherwise it's very difficult.
1: Because do you remember that case with the twins and the one guy had murdered... did murdered yeah, didn't they blame the his girlfriend when he got out of prison and he tried to blame his his twin
0: yeah, yeah and
1: they knew that they'd both been there but his fingerprints were found on the beer bottle
0: mm. do you know what weirdly and sorry for uh, sidetrack again but we've covered we cover twins quite a lot in in our show don't we in true crime they do feature and we've had a few different cases where we featured twins like the madness of twins that crazy one where those two women were running around on the motorway but yeah we do Mm -hmm. kind of revisit the concept of twins quite often
1: we do do you think all twins are evil
0: Um, (laughs) i'm 100 joking
1: guys please don't come for us i okay fine no i'm I'm
0: kidding no of course they're not (laughs) some are
1: we had some listeners um get in touch with us actually to say if they were a twin and that they listen and they're twins or they have twin children and it always makes me chuckle whenever we talk about twins um, we do hear from people who are like, that, and I'm sure we all get, we're not actually evil, I promise. <laughs> but beyond that, nobody, no scientist really knows how you end up with your personal prints or why we only have friction ridges on our hands and feet. Sometimes as well, toe prints complicate a case rather than solve it because large complete prints of fingers and toes are quite obviously easy to differentiate. They're clearly a hand or a foot and whatever. But... Police sometimes have to settle for fragments of a print. And as a result, investigators sometimes unknowingly submit toe prints to a lab, which then comes up with no match because the system's looking through think- fingerprints because they think they found a fingerprint, but it's actually a partial toe. So that's and quite also, interesting.
0: I, I wonder when they put it, when they run it through the database, a partial toe print could potentially be a match to somebody else's fingerprint. So that could oh, cause problems. I know that the odds of that would be minimal, but that could but potentially could, happen. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: So we're going to come on to our final case of the show. Colton Harris Moore was born on March the 22nd and 1991 at the Skagit Valley Hospital in Mount Vernon in Washington to parents Pamela and Gordon. They lived in Camano Island, which is a large island in procession sound, a part of Island County in Washington. I've had to put the Google Maps image here for you, Mark, because it isn't an area of the US I know much about. And I was surprised by the fact that there's an island there. Makes no difference to the case. I just found it really interesting. I don't know how well you can see this in the image. I can see. I didn't.
0: I hadn't um, noticed that you'd put a picture in until we've literally got to this point. So yeah, is So that I Canada? just find no, it fascinating that's in, that there's mm, islands. Yeah, it's like nearly Canada. So it is isn't in
1: Washington, it? but it's nearly Canada. Definitely, and the case will span into Canada as well. It literally makes no difference, but I just found it fascinating. I just always assumed that Washington was just a land bit, and that was it. But I just always find it amazing the the way the world forms and these little islands in this inlet oh. and everything. just You need to get out more,
0: Bethan. You need to get out more. I
1: do, don't I? Crikey. Yeah,
0: you really do. Although last week I was, I became fascinated and obsessed with the English Channel. So I can't really talk, can I? You did.
1: Yeah. No, you can't. So colton's father who reportedly struggled with drug and alcohol abuse abandoned the family when colton was a teenager leaving him and his mum Sir pamela and she had sole custody she raised her son on camano island in a trailer park and they had a really tough life it was an unstable and often abusive environment pamela struggled with alcohol addiction too and the pair lived in a dilapidated single width trailer Colton began exhibiting behavioural issues at an early age. By the age of seven, he was running away from home on a regular basis, spending days at a time out in the nearby forests. And he'd break into vacation homes where he'd steal food and camping supplies in order to survive out in the woods. It will probably come as no surprise, but Colton did not do very well in school. He was transferred between schools for disciplinary issues and truancy. And by ninth grade, I did Google this, so that's the age of 14 to 15, he dropped out of school fully. During this time, he also got his first conviction for stealing at the age of just 12. And he had served time in a youth detention centre. The school reported their concerns of neglect or child, or may, maybe abuse to the Child Protective Services who paid several visits to the trailer to speak to his mum and to investigate and ultimately they placed Carlton into temporary foster care. On July fourteenth, two 2006, so at the age of 15, a warrant was issued for Carlton's arrest after he failed to attend a mandatory court appearance. He went on the run. He took refuge from the police in the Kamano Island woods that he knew so well And of course, he started robbing the holiday homes again for food and supplies, but this time he also went a bit further. Using the computers in the holiday homes to get online, Colton taught himself how to steal identities. He'd then order credit cards in the homeowner's name, like the holiday homeowner's name, to the holiday home. He would then use those to buy food and high tech survival gear. So the gear he ordered included items like night vision goggles, so he could stay one step ahead of the police. Considering he's 15, how cl- is... I actually am quite impressed by how clever he was to think of that.
0: I'm I'm really interested to, to see where this goes because this kid is a genius.
1: But it's like if you use your genius for good, then you could go really far. Yeah. But how how he's using it? Yeah. So after six months on the run, six months, Mark, would you last more than six days? I, I
0: wouldn't last six fucking hours, Bethan. I wouldn't last six hours, would I? No. I mean, I really wouldn't.
1: I was going to put six hours in my script when I was writing. I was like, would you last more than six hours? And I was like, I'll go with days. I'll give you the benefit of no. the doubt. But then you've said it yourself.
0: Yeah, this is someone that, you know, has attempted to go camping before and has had to come home within about 12 hours. So no, it's not going to happen.
1: That's embarrassing. So yeah, after six months on the run on Camino Island, Colton was captured and arrested. He'd been in the in the kind of the woods on the island. It was the 9th of February, 2007, and the teenager was now facing 23 criminal charges, mostly due to the burglaries and the identity thefts. After pleading guilty to three crimes, Colton was able to make a deal with the prosecution. He ended up being sentenced to a three-year sentence at a high-security juvenile detention facility called green hill school now at green hill unlike normal school colton was on his best behavior his conduct was described by staff as exemplary but this was all part of his plan within a year he was transferred to a minimum security halfway house and just two months after his arrival he made a run for it he stole a car and he headed straight back to his old stomping ground This time, a felony warrant was issued for his arrest and the police launched a campaign for Colton's capture. The local community became gripped by the story of this mysterious teenage outlaw who kept avoiding the police, often by mere minutes. The media had a field day reporting on the escapades, especially when a car chase resulted in Colton fleeing the car into the forest. And it was genuinely the police arrived minutes later. He fled into the forest. They didn't find him. But he had left behind a stash of credit cards and stolen mobile phones in the car. Also in the car at this point was a digital camera. And I thought that is so 2007 because I always went around with my digital camera.
0: Bulging out of your pocket.
1: Oh my God, every time. And then you'd have to like put them onto your computer to look at them the next day. Brilliant. On... The digital camera were loads of photos of Colton during his time on the run. And there was one photo that went viral. It showed him led in the woods looking up at the sky slash the camera. And actually, a fan base began online and in the media. Due to his habit of committing crimes whilst barefoot and sometimes leaving his footprints behind, Colton became known as the Barefoot Bandit. So there you go, Mark. That's why it's tied in with. I can the case. see the link. This is quite tenuous but feet there we go that's the link with all the attention on him on camino island colton needed to get off the island and he decided this time he was going to steal a boat flee to a nearby island called orcas island soon after his arrival there in august 2008 the sheriff's office began receiving an increasing number of burglary reports and the residents of this other small island began to panic too off the back of this, the local police were keen to apprehend the burglar, who they believed would be Harris Moore. So with them hot on his heels again, he needed another escape. So we've had a stolen car, we've had a stolen boat. What could be next, Mark?
0: Um, A stolen aeroplane, it's got to be.
1: It's got to be. And yep. so having stolen a Cessna 182, a single-engine aeroplane belonging to a local radio host, a kind of low-level celebrity from a local hangar, and with no previous aviation experience he was able to successfully take off from the island and flight 300 miles to the no, east. No,
0: no, Bethan. I mean, YouTube wasn't even a thing back then. I don't think. So I don't even think he'd have been able to f- find a video that would teach him to fly. So Assassina. since he
1: was a child, he'd been playing Microsoft Flight Simulator loads. That was his, apparently his favourite game as a child on the computer. And he taught himself to fly from reading aircraft manuals, watching instructional DVDs, and then also from all his knowledge of Microsoft Flight Simulator. This, he actually had a really guy, decent idea of what to do.
0: This guy is a genius.
1: He could have done so much more with his life, couldn't he?
0: Yeah, I really want want a happy ending for him, actually.
1: Just wait and see. Now, unfortunately for Colton, landing, and unfortunately for the plane's owner as well, I suppose, landing was another thing. He didn't successfully land this plane. Instead, he crashed it, but he was unhurt. And they say crashed, but I think it was more of like a, a very bumpy crash landing. He was trying. He just failed. He fled the plane and once more managed to avoid the authorities who arrived hot on his tail. When the police searched the plane, a telltale footprint was discovered inside the cockpit, so the teenage barefoot bandit had struck again. Over the next year or so, Harris Moore stole a series of vehicles moving around the country from Reno to Sacramento and through eastern Washington. He then had headed back to Camino Island in May 2009. Sorry, guys, I don't know what I'm saying now, whether it's Camino or Kamano. so I do apologise. But he headed back to Kamano Island in May 2009, where it feels like he really wanted to taunt the police. And he enjoyed staying one he- step ahead of them. You can tell that this was something he enjoyed doing.
0: That's part of the thrill, isn't it, for him?
1: I think so. During the early hours of June the nineteenth, two thousand and nine, he broke into a patrol car that was parked in front of a deputy's house and stole police equipment, including a cell phone, an official issue a police rifle, and a supply of ammunition. He's just brazen,
0: and that's 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 really escalated, and starting to get worrying now because I suppose he was buying sort of supplies and stuff on online, but now he's armed himself properly.
1: Yeah, and the fact that he's armed is is actually quite scary now because you just you know that that's an escalation whereas I I do feel like with him it was more just look what I can do. Mm. However, it is that's worrying. Of course, the authorities needed to find the now 18-year-old who was running rings around them. It's like a, he's like a movie and his his story did get made into a film actually eventually. But Harris Moore had honed his skills, becoming more careful and more meticulous in all of his activities. Continuing to island hop with the police not knowing where he'd go next, Harris Moore stole two more planes, another boat and numerous cars. The third plane he stole ran out of fuel, forcing a crash landing. By this point, the media just had a field day with the story. His mum was asked for a comment and she actually told reporters, I'm proud of him. I was going to send him to flight school, but I guess I don't have to. Well, oh, Pamela.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, Pamela's obviously, you know, swigging on the gin or whatever, but yeah, I kind of get where she's coming from. I would kind of be proud of him in a weird sort of roundabout way, even I, though he's done done I wrong. I would
1: be too. Like, I don't know if, if I'd necessarily say that to the press, but actually I probably would, because you know what we're like, we often put our foot in it, don't we? But he's, obviously what he's doing is naughty and criminal, but... Fair play to him. He's he's being clever about it. He's having to use a lot of skills.
0: <laughs> yeah, we'll give him that.
1: By October 2009, he was the key suspect in over 100 vehicle thefts throughout Washington, Idaho and Canada. Most of which were cars, but then there were the planes and there were also some speedboats and the boats as well. In February 2010, in an even more brazen heist... Didn't think it was possible. But basically, Harris Moore stole a plane. He landed on Orcas Island, robbed a local store called Homegrown Grocery of around $1,000 in cash. And then he had the time to use chalk to draw a trail of cartoonish looking feet that snaked up and down the aisles (laughs) of the store, ending with the taunting message of see ya.
0: Uh, I mean, yeah, he's such an anti-hero. I really don't want to condone what he's doing, but... That's hilarious.
1: It is hilarious. and But this is the problem, isn't it? You give a criminal fun nickname, the media give these criminals fun nicknames, and then they can do funny things like that.
0: Yeah, he's going to play up to it.
1: So the FBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and also the Department of Homeland Security, the DHS, soon joined the hunt, along with the Coast Guard, the existing people who were chasing him, the Sheriff's Departments, the police, etc., after he stole another plane and another boat, the FBI placed a $10,000 reward for information leading to his arrest. They were on him, all of these different agencies. But what I will say with Harris Moore is that he wasn't just stealing. In May 2010, a handwritten note and a $100 in cash was found at a vet center, and on the note Harris Moore had written, I drove by, had some extra cash please use this money for the care of the animals from Colton Harris-Moore, a.k.a. the Barefoot Bandit. So oh, he's trying to do something nice yeah, with some of the it, stuff he stole.
0: I, I love that.
1: I can't help but really like this guy when I, when yeah, I was researching same. the case. I genuinely can't help it. And you know what? I think, it, I think it's not going to be much of a spoiler to just kind of say, guys, he didn't kill anybody. So I don't think it, you know, what he's doing is wrong. But we can just, we can be happy with the fact that he's not a murderer and likes animals. Oh, that was something I was meant to mention at the top of the show, Mark. Um Emiliano Sala's dog. You know, we mentioned he had a dog. Yeah. Let me just find the note. Somebody let me know. I saw this, his
0: sister, I know that his sister his sister adopted the was dog. His sister, didn't she? there we yeah. go. I couldn't
1: remember who it was. Yes, his dog was adopted by his sister. Um so thank you very much to Esteke forty four on Instagram for letting us know a couple of really nice facts. Um, to kind of bring it a bit of a lighter note So thank you for that But yeah, I thought I'd mention that in the episode
0: Yeah, love it And um, also also, I think they, they did mention I think I saw it briefly uh, Around Emiliano's legacy And uh, how he's still, you know FC Nantes, how he's remembered And it was lovely to hear that So thank you for getting in touch
1: A couple of people mentioned that, didn't they? How lovely yeah. that is That there's still chants sung for his memory and stuff Yeah So by June of that year, Harris Moore had made plans to get to Cuba due to its lack of extradition treaties with the US government. And he used his piloting experience to make it as far as the Bahamas. But once again, he had to crash land. And after this, he found his way to a nearby fishing village and he survived for several days by stealing food from nearby stores and restaurants. But his time on the run was coming to an end. Thanks to a series of tips from local residents, the police managed to track Harris Moore down and on the 11th of July, they caught him in a stolen boat. He got the boat stuck on a sandbar and they shot the engine out. So Harris Moore was caught. He did put a gun to his head and threatened to pull the trigger, but the police talked him out of this and he was arrested and he he did go with them. He was extradited from Nassau in the Bahamas to Miami and then he was transferred to the Federal Detention Centre in one near to Seattle where he was held for the next two years. Ultimately he was sentenced to seven years of state prison time an additional six years by the island county court and six years in prison by the federal district court but his county state and federal prison times were consolidated so he had a six-year sentence and he was transferred to the stafford creek correction center in nearby aberdeen he apparently told the court that he was genuinely remorseful for his crimes and that when he got out of prison he planned to work and become an aeronautical engineer and soon after reporting to prison, he sold the rights to his life and to his life story to 20th Century Fox for $1.4 million. And all of that went towards the restitution per the terms of his sentencing.
0: Oh, so, the, I mean, there is a happy ending and he's uh, six years. He hopefully will have learned his lesson um, because that's still a I decent sentence. I genuinely think he did. Yeah. yeah.
1: He's now, um, he's now out. He's lived a very low-key life since and actually Mm. nobody knows where he is um i don't think he's really had a social media presence or anything for a good sort of 10 years from what i can see at one point he tried to raise money from a gofundme page to get his pilot's license and he put a load of stuff on social media saying i should do it properly now shouldn't i the courts then took all of that money and put it towards his restitution and he didn't raise enough anyway but um they kind of went you can't do that please don't do that um so there's there's been a few kind of moments It's still in his youth after his prison sentence that he did serve and he did kind of come back and go on to social media. But actually, in recent years, there's no social media presence and it appears that he's just gone to live a normal life. And I, I kind of hope he has used those brains to go and be an aeronautical engineer or, or something really cool.
0: He was brainy. probably... Yeah, he was probably just far too intelligent for his age, and that's why he couldn't really get on at school. And it just kind of school, yeah, bored and it manifested in a yeah exactly it manifested in all these weird and quite wonderful ways to be fair and now if he's getting i genuinely think if my children
1: could go and live in the woods for six months whilst obviously i don't want them to do that and i would miss them and i wouldn't want them to go off for six (laughs) months if i knew that my children children could go and survive for six months i would be proud though i'd be like well done you can do that if my girls in the future said they want to go camping just the two of them and i mean i would be freaked out because we we absorb a lot of not true crime, woods, so not in no woods, not Eden Lake no vibes,
0: Eden Lake, Bethans. but that's what it could be.
1: I know exactly, but the fact that they could, I would be very proud. So,
0: yeah,
1: I, yeah. I feel I think you're right. He was just far too intelligent for the life he was handed.
0: And I think if he's in if he's in a job that requires him to use his brain, which he probably is, I think that will kind of satisfy any urges to become out of control in other ways so yeah I'm not surprised he leads a quiet life now but what what an amazing story for him to tell and of course there are victims along the way but really you know they're kind of not really victims in the true sense of that word so and he's paid that restitution so yeah what an amazing well amazing guy actually interesting
1: really interesting and um yeah hopefully you found that a little bit of a lighter one and it it's kind of helped you to decompress from some of the other stuff we've been talking about, just to actually almost cheer on someone a little bit that's that's doing the criminal
0: acts. Yeah definitely needed um don't forget you can follow us on all the social media so we're now on what's that thing called threads we're on threads uh and loads of you are following us on there so thank you uh for everybody finding us on threads and um, we're also on instagram and facebook you can find us there and as we said earlier in in the episode if you want to support us on patreon all you need to do is head over to patreon.com slash seeing red podcast
1: thank you so much for joining us guys and we'll be back next week with another episode
0: we'll see you then bye Hi angels, it's your girl Louise Rumble and I'm the host of the Open House podcast. Therapy quite literally changed my life and sent me straight into my hot healing girl era. Now, each week I share my story, the good, the bad and the downright juicy and chat with some of the world's best therapists, psychologists and wellness experts. From love, sex and dating to attachment styles, nervous system regulation, wellness hacks, hormone balancing and more, nothing is off the table. I've emptied my bank account on therapy and healing so you don't have to. So if you're ready to leave the past in the past and build the future you've always deserved, me and my favorite experts are waiting for you on the Open House podcast. Listen now wherever you stream your podcasts and I cannot wait to meet you.